You're listening to Mountainside Podcast. Always a privilege to speak to you. Thanks for that. I want to start today by asking a question. What are you here for? Not like, what are you here in this room for right now, but like, what are you here on this earth for? Or I imagine uh, somebody came up to you on the street and asked you that question. Just out of nowhere, they just hit you with it. What are you here for? What would your answer be in one sentence or less? I'm going to give you 10 seconds to think about it. If you had to just nail it down to one sentence, what are you here for? 10 seconds. Okay, now turn to the person beside you, say, hi, my name is, whatever your name is, and tell them what you're here for. Sounds like some uh, purposes are a lot longer than one sentence. Uh, here is another question. If there was a video camera on you all the time, kind of like the Truman Show, I know this sounds really creepy, but roll with me on this. If there was footage of your whole life, and it was edited down to get rid of the X-rated parts, and also just to summarize the main themes of your life, the main patterns and rhythms that you live in from day to day, and a stranger sat down and watched the summary of your life, would they conclude that your purpose is the one you just stated? Would your life evidence the purpose, that the, the reason why you say you are here? So for instance, you know, if you said, you know, my purpose is to increase the population of giraffes in the world, would that person watching your videos be like, well, hanging out with a lot of giraffes, they're feeding them, they're, they're treating them, they're helping them breed, and they're fighting off giraffe hunters. I would conclude that this purpose, this person's purpose is to make more giraffes. Or, uh, if they watch that video, they watched your life reel, would they conclude that your purpose is to consume the maximum amount of Netflix, Facebook, and Doritos as possible? Is the way you choose to live a simple expression of your stated purpose in life? Or is there a big disconnect between the two? Is the way that you live day to day evidence that you're living for some other purpose, the one that you say you're living for? Here's another probing and annoying question. Is your purpose a source of strength for you in both the highs and the lows of life? So when a lot of the good things are stripped away, does your purpose still give you meaning and a sense of responsibility in the day-to-day? -day? Would your purpose sustain you and give you a sense of what to do or how to act, for instance, in a Nazi concentration camp? I know that's a really morbid turn of thought, but you may have heard of Viktor Frankl, uh, a Jewish psych psychiatrist. He wrote this book called Man's Search for Meaning. He's a Holocaust survivor. During the Second World War, 
Victor was put into a Jewish ghetto and then taken from there to Auschwitz and Dachau. And being a psychiatrist, he still wanted to observe how both he and his fellow prisoners responded to life in a concentration camp. How would they survive mentally in a death camp? And what he found was some people had a powerful enough sense of purpose that it could keep hope alive for them even in a Nazi concentration camp. I mean, when, when, when much of their life had been stripped away, they still had a sense of responsibility to something bigger than themselves while they were living in a concentration camp. They knew what they were there for, even in that environment. And that nurtured hope in them and gave them a sense of control over their choices. But other people did not have that purpose and they could not discern what they were there for and hope collapsed for them. That's what Victor observed. And after the war, Frankel took what he learned and he began a whole new school of psychotherapy. He began to treat people under the assumption that most of our anxiety, much of our depression, much of the ills that plague us mentally and spiritually have to do with a lack of meaning and responsibility in our lives. He found that he could cure much of people's mental ills, their depression, their anxiety, simply by helping them identify their responsibilities, even in dark phases of their life. He wrote this, freedom, personal freedom he's talking about, is in danger of degenerating into mere arbitrariness unless it is lived in terms of responsibleness. That is why I recommend the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast be supplemented by a Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast. In other words, he's saying that freedom and responsibility are really two sides of the same coin. When we know and we're confident of our responsibilities and we're empowered to live them out, then we feel free. But when we don't know what our responsibilities are, when we don't know what we're here for, and we are not empowered to carry those responsibilities out, then we feel stuck, we feel trapped, we feel anxious. So when we know what we are here to do and we do it, it is then that we become truly free. It sounds a lot like what Jesus said. He said this, if you hold to my teachings, which tell you what you are here for and how you can live that out, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So Jesus says, I'm going to tell you what the will of God is for your life so you know what your responsibilities are. And if you follow that, not you won't be trapped and stuck and have a constricted life. Actually, you'll be set free. Psychological research backs up what Jesus said. I'll show you a quote from a really smart guy from a really smart place in a really smart journal. Rob Whitley. He's a PhD. You should listen to him. Let's go to the next slide. Yeah. He said this. The amassed research indicates that higher levels of religious belief and practice, so like hearing Jesus' words, believing them, and then putting them to practice in your life, is associated with better mental health. In particular, lower rates of depression, anxiety, substance use disorder, and suicidal behavior. Better physical health and subjective well Beings. So that sounds a lot like freedom, you know. Contrary to popular opinion, freedom is not being unfettered 
from commitments and responsibilities. Freedom is knowing what God put you here for and living it out. So, knowing clearly what you are here for is some of the most powerful knowledge that you could have for your life. It's very valuable to know clearly this is what I'm here for. So for the next four weeks, we're going to tell you what you're here for. Tithing, working on my programs, and... No, it's a joke. <laughs> Although that's good too. You should do that stuff. Uh, we're just going to go into the Word and see what Jesus says we are here for. And the big directives, the broad strokes of what we as Christians and humans are here for. We're going to unpack the broad strokes and it's going to be up to you to determine the specifics. But you know, that's between you and God, how you're going to live out these big directives from God for us. So today, what I want to talk about is work. Kind of going backwards, Pastor Sean was going to preach another sermon that would have transitioned well here. So I'm kind of going to do, we're just talking about work right now. What are you doing in your work? What are you at work for? If you've ever asked the question, what in the world am I here for? When you're at work, then that's what I want to help you with from Jesus' words. We all spend a lot of time at work, whether you work at the mine or you work at Tim Hortons or you work at the cop shop or at school or online or at home with your own family. We all invest a large portion of our life at work. What is God's will for us in our work? And I want to turn to Jesus' words, an episode from his life, and his words in Matthew chapter 20 to find that out. And all this whole chapter in Matthew chapter 20 is about Jesus' teachings on work, but we're going to zone in on the second half of the chapter uh, where there's an episode involving James and John's mom. Uh, that, that's really when your career takes off, when your mom gets involved, as we shall see. So James and John are two of Jesus' closest disciples. Jesus nicknamed them the Sons of Thunder. Not exactly clear why he gave them that nickname. It might be because of their mom. Her nickname might have been Thunder. So they're the Sons of Thunder. Anyway, it's clear from what happens in this story that she is the one that wore the pants in the family. So let's read in Matthew 20, starting at verse 20. The mother of James and John... The sons of Zebedee, so that's dad, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask a favor. What is your request? Jesus asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you. One on your right and the other on your left. So... James and John's mom, she doesn't beat around the bush. She doesn't mince, mince words. She's like, I want the glory for my boys. And I am not ashamed about that. This lady reminds me of my mom. My mom is my greatest fan. She wants to introduce me to all her friends so they can all see my glory. She watches every single one of my sermons and my brother's sermons. She gets angry when they are not put online today. And if Jesus was here, I have no doubt she would be in the line of mom saying, my boys, Jesus, you know, make sure they get the glory. Moms probably haven't changed a lot in 2,000 years, I don't think. James and John's mom is convinced that Jesus is sent from God and that one day he will rule God's kingdom. And she wants to make sure that when that day comes... 
that he is enthroned over all the earth, that her two boys are seated in positions of honor and glory and recognition above all the rest of the schmucks of history. It's my word of the day, schmuck. It's got four consonants in a row at the very beginning. It's a pretty special word. The word kingdom uh, might not bring to mind regular life and work for you. You know, might, might get us thinking about work as, as we're reading this, but it would have for a first century Jew. And the Jewish story of creation, uh, written in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, uh, it's the story of the Creator setting up His kingdom. That is the earth. And God is working, that's how it's all set up, it's like a seven-day week, so he's working for six days to create his kingdom, and then at the end of that, he creates humanity and sets them on their work. They will continue his work. So God creates the universe, he orders it, light and dark, sun and moon, land and sea, plants and animals, and last of all, he creates us, and he says to us, let us make human beings. Oh, he says to himself, sorry. He's going to talk to us in a second. Let us make human beings in our image to be like us. So himself. And right away here now he's saying, we're going to create them. Now we're going to tell them what to do. This is what they are here for. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the ground, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. The mice are not left out in God's directives. The small animals that scurry are still mentioned. Uh, God creates the world in all its beauty. He puts human beings in it. He creates them in his own image. And he puts us in a position to reign over his kingdom. So we are his governors who are to govern his world, his creation, as he would. So we are his regents, his representatives, meant to care for his kingdom as he does. And it says, Then God blessed us and said, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So this is the job God has given us, all humanity, to spread across the face of the earth, be fruitful, multiply. I think we've taken care of that not too bad, haven't we? And to govern it. What does this word govern mean? What did God mean that we should rule, that we should govern over His creation? Does it mean that we give orders to the small animals that scurry along the ground? I tried that. It didn't work. They don't listen. Uh, the Hebrew word for govern is the word kavash. And it could be translated cultivate. So God says our job is to cultivate the earth. Which makes sense because he takes Adam and Eve and places them in a garden. So cultivate the garden of the earth. For everyone's benefit. For all the rest of these creatures. Including the small animals that scurry along the ground. Now, we've messed this part up, haven't we? And we've spread across the face of the earth. But have we managed, cultivated the earth for the benefit of all God's creatures? Not so much. There's lots of creatures that are suffering because of the way that we are governing God's world. But regardless, our God-given responsibility and all our work is to take the raw materials and the raw potential that God has placed in the earth and in the universe and cultivate it to bring more value 
out of it. So God has locked up incredible potential in the soil and in the sun, in the rock, in the air, in the water. There's latent power in plants and animals and sunlight. There's latent power in people themselves. And it's our job to bring that potential to be. To cultivate the earth so that we add value for everyone. To develop in a way that is beneficial for every living thing. That's our God-given responsibility at our work. And preachers like myself have failed to support people in this endeavor. So usually we create this separation between spiritual, sacred work and secular work. It's like, you know, all God cares about at your job is that you be a really good example and that you share your faith well. But who really cares about the actual tasks of your job? Those are of minor importance. It's church work that matters. It's what you do here that really matters to get involved in my programs. That's the way that we've often talked, but that is just not biblical and it is false. All work is sacred, both work that is inside and outside the church when it is done for the glory of God and the good of others, from scrubbing floors to scrubbing videos, from planting flowers to planting churches, from growing grain to growing investments. All work is a form of worship to God when done for His glory and for the good of all creatures. And that is just the question. Has your career been about the glory of God and the good of others? Or has it been about something else? What have you been at work for? Certainly the mother of the sons of thunder had another goal in mind for their career. So she says, Jesus in your kingdom, you know, in the kingdom that we've kind of wrecked up here and we're looking to you to restore, you know, when you get enthroned, you're going to restore all of us to the full image of God so we can govern this thing well again. That's what we'll be doing in heaven. In your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. You know, I want my boys to win. I want them to rise above the rest. Has this not become the distorted goal that Western society holds out to us for our career? That we would win. That we would rise above the rest. That we would be distinguished over and above the rest of our colleagues. Uh, the word honor is not actually in the original Greek text. It's just command, Jesus. Command that James and John, my boys, are the ones to sit beside you, one in your right, one in your left. In other words, as close to the top as possible. That's where I want my boys to end up. Never mind if they should actually be there. Never mind what they actually do between now and then. Never mind how helpful that actually is to everyone. Just make sure that they win over and above the rest of the people of history. Is that too much to ask Jesus? So yeah, again, isn't this, isn't this the goal that our society puts in front of us? Winning for ourselves. You know, getting a winning occupation in the first place, one that looks like it's a winning occupation, and then winning within it. It's like, you know, I want to work, I want work that is distinguished. I don't want to work some lame janitor job or some manual labor job or I don't want to work in the service industry. I mean, that's just not giving me, going to give me a sense of meaning in my work. 
I want the kind of career that when I tell people, you know, I'm a doctor, I'm an MP, I'm a CEO, they're like, whoa, career aristocracy, man, is in the room. And as I go along in my career, I want to look over my shoulders at the people next to me and see that I'm doing better than the average gal or guy. Achieving more, making more, getting noticed more. I want to win. I planted uh, trees for three summers when I was in college. That was my summer work, my summer job. And I put a few hundred thousand, by my calculations, a few hundred thousand trees in the ground. How many trees did you all put in the ground? Yeah. <laughs> Not that many, I didn't think so. I think that's a pretty meaningful thing, you know, like 300,000 trees. That's cultivating the earth. That's, you know, restoring the forests. I should have been able to take a lot of satisfaction from that, but I never did. All that mattered to me day by day when I planted trees was one thing. The number of trees that I put in the ground each day. That number represented A, how much money I made that day, and B, who I beat on my crew or who I lost to in the competition to plant the most trees per day. Every day at that job was about winning or losing. And that's why I found it so oppressive. It's about something that was wrong with me, not tree planting. When you think about what your job is to you, what are you there for? What are you at work for? What does success in your job look like to you? Is it getting more money? Getting a promotion? More recognition? Is that what you're after? For James and John and for James and John's mom, that's what it was about. More. Getting more. They would feel like their career meant something as long as more was at the end of it. If we can just win in the end, then we'll know our work was worth it. But Jesus answered by saying to them, he's talking to everybody now, not just mom, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I am about to drink? So Jesus says, you want to win? You want to succeed? You don't know what you're asking. Success before God doesn't look what, like what you think it does. It doesn't look like winning. It doesn't look like rising to the top. In fact, it looks a lot like tumbling down to the very bottom, underneath Everyone And Jesus is going to say, this is what I am going to do. I'm going to give my life as a ransom for everyone. Career success for Jesus was being hammered to a piece of wood, naked, being mocked in front of a jeering crowd, dying slowly for the sins of the whole world. That was his career goal. That's where he was headed, all the way to the top. His crowning glory, his crowning achievement of his career was dying painfully for your sins and my sins so that the image of God could be restored in us through faith in him. And Jesus says to James and John, are you in for that? When you say you want to be distinguished in God's eyes above all the rest, that is what you are asking. It's actually to go way down to the bottom of the career ladder and suffer for the good of other people. Can you handle that? Oh yeah. <laughs> we can handle it, Jesus. We are able. I don't know if Jesus laughed a long, long laugh at this point or what he did, but he told them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup. 
but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or my left. My Father has prepared those places for the ones who earn it by doing better than everybody else. No, for those He has chosen. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. What the... You two sons of thunder tried to worm your way past us by getting your mom involved to do your dirty work. That is lame. I imagine James and John never lived this one down. It's like, remember that time when you got your mom to go and ask Jesus to beat us? Wow. But Jesus called them together. He said, hello, guys. You know that the rulers in this world lord it over their people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. So Jesus says, I know how the world works. I know that everyone's default in their career is to climb over others, to try to rise above. And then they stroke their egos when they get to the top. It's like, man, I'm good at what I do. Look at how distinguished I am. And they use their success and their authority for their own ends. It's like, that's what's natural for people says Jesus. But among you, he says, it will be different. For my followers, it will be different. Forget about being distinguished over and above others. Forget about rising to the top. That's not what my kingdom will be about. The purpose of your career will not be to rise above if you are my follower. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. So uh, according to Jesus, our God-given responsibility at our work is to leverage all our effort, all our skill, all our training, all our special, unique way that we are wired to serve others and serve them well, to come underneath them and bless them. In Jesus' name, if you are a Jesus follower, you are not in your career primarily trying to make money, even though that's good and we need money. You're not primarily trying to get promoted, though getting promoted is good if it helps you serve more people well and you belong in that role. We're not trying to become distinguished over and above our colleagues, even though the affirmation of others is a good thing. And if we're doing well at our work, we'll probably get some of that. If you're following Jesus at work, you are creating the most value possible for the most people. Even when that costs you something. You know, some of the other kinds of success or winning that other people would get if they weren't really out for that. It's going to cost you something to serve people really, really well. Is that what you think about your work? When you're at your job, you're like, this is why I'm here, man. I am here to serve others to the best of my ability. Not just your colleagues, you know, like, yeah, we want to treat them well too, but we're also providing a service. We're providing a product for people. Are we trying to do that the best for them? Are we trying to serve them well by creating a good product, giving them a good service? The best way that you can serve others at your work is to be really good at what you do. The best way you can serve others and love others at your job is to create the most value possible for them. I love this story of this guy uh, named David Cronin. I've told this story before. Hopefully you've forgotten about it since I told it. Uh, David Cronin is a Christian man and captain of the United Airlines Flight 811 from Honolulu to New Zealand. 
When he flew his jet airliner up to 22,000 feet, the forward cargo door ripped off and tore a hole in the side of the plane. Nine people were immediately sucked out to their deaths, and the two engines on the right side blew up because of the shrapnel, and a bunch of other systems on the plane were critically disabled. 22,000 feet up, the aircraft was critically damaged. And at that point, as Pastor William Deal wrote, no one on board cared about how Captain Cronin treated his co-workers. No one was really too concerned about how good he was at sharing his faith, even though that's important. All anyone on board cared about at that moment was whether or not Captain Cronin could put that plane down safely. I don't know why I'm crying about that. On a runway, in one piece. Which he did to the amazement of all. So Captain Cronin served and loved everyone well by landing that plane, by keeping them alive. All the training and the seriousness about his work, which he had cultivated over thousands of hours, paid off. It was the ultimate service that he could have given to his passengers. And they asked him, the media did after he'd landed, you know, what did you do when half the plane blew up? He said, I said a prayer and I got back to work. I said a prayer and I got back to work. You serve people well when you do your job well. You love people well when you do your job well. If you want to be first, if you want to be distinguished in your career before God, then figure out how you can take your gifts and your effort and your abilities and your personality and create the most value possible for the most people. That is a loving, worshipful act to God. Even if it means that you might take lower pay or a lower position because actually that's the place where you can serve people best. Or even if it means you have to switch jobs because like I can't really serve people well in this job. I'm succeeding, but I'm not actually serving people well. So I'm going to take a different job where I can serve people well. Our work is not about us. Once in a while I catch myself obsessing too often about you know, whether I'm going to make it at my job. Am I going to be distinguished? Am I going to you know, be the pastor that's just like, well, that guy, he's really, really, really good. And I'm just obsessed about it, you know? And I, all of a sudden, I feel a huge weight come off my shoulders when I hear these words. It's not about me. It's not, it's not about me. It's about the people that I serve. That is a freeing, freeing thing when we don't have to be concerned anymore about succeeding for ourselves. We can just be concerned about serving others well in the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, yeah, we, we do want you to say to us when we get to heaven, well done, good and faithful servant. And we know that you won't say that because we had some position or some job or some recognition that other people in the world gave us, but simply because we served you and others well at our work. So we pray that that would be what our careers would be defined by. Help us in the day-to-day. -day. Help us not to fall into, go into autopilot and just go about the motions of our job. But, but help us, Lord, to reflect upon how we can serve others well with our time there and how we can serve you well with our time there. Give us power from your Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that, that he empowers us, us not just to do so-called spiritual things, but also to do all the rest of the things that we do in our life. So we need power from him to serve you and others well. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message at Mountainside Community Church. 
If you would like to get connected to one of our campuses or just learn more about who we are as a church, then we encourage you to visit our website, mountainsidechurch.ca. God bless.